Absolutely love that song. So appropriate for this episode. If you don't recognize it, then you've probably never seen the musical Aida on Broadway. That was actually the first and for a long time the only Broadway performance I ever saw way back in the year 2000. And it's all about ancient Egypt. It's an incredible love story of betrayal and conquest and power and empathy. And it's all set in ancient Egypt. You know, I also saw the opera version of Aida one time at the Cairo Opera House. And the opera put me to sleep, literally. I fell asleep about halfway through it. The musical version is much, much better. And it has some really catchy original songs about Egypt and pyramids and stuff like you just heard. Anyway, this is not a podcast about show business. It's a podcast about Egypt. This is the Egypt Travel Blog Podcast, episode number four, or as they say in Arabic. And episode four is going to be all about, as the title says, the pyramids. This is the only one of the seven wonders of the ancient world to survive into the present era. Everything else has vanished or crumbled or been destroyed by man or nature, and these bad boys have stood the test of time and are still standing here today. So you know what that means. You can actually go visit them and see them for yourself firsthand in person. You can touch them, you can go inside of them, you can take selfies in front of them, or whatever you want to do when you're standing at the feet of one of the wonders of the ancient world, the only one still left that you can actually go see. These monuments, the pyramids, are truly incredible and awe-inspiring. Let me tell you, when you're actually there before them in person, no photograph, no image, nothing can do them justice, honestly. You really have to be there, you have to go there, And you have to see them for yourself to really understand what people are talking about when they say that the pyramids of Egypt are just incredible. So in this episode, I want to break down talking about the pyramids and visiting them into several different parts for easier digestion for you. Okay, I'll start out with some basics as usual, and then we'll switch gears a little bit and dive into some history. Then we'll jump back into the present and I'll walk you through a day trip out to the pyramids from a logistical side and from an insider perspective. And it's really in this last part where we're going to get into things like what to watch out for, and I'll tell you about some of the very common and notorious, albeit, I'll admit, very sneaky and clever, scams and ripoffs at the pyramids, and I'll tell you how to avoid them and make sure you actually have an amazing time, whether you're with a group or God help you on your own, when you go visit the pyramids. All right? Okay. For the basics, let's start there. It's important to know right off the bat that when people talk about the pyramids in Egypt, they're almost always talking about the pyramids at Giza. Sometimes you might hear people say the Great Pyramids, plural, but they're really getting that wrong. Technically, there's just one Great Pyramid, and that's the pyramid at Giza known as the Pyramid of Khufu, or Cheops, depending on whether you use the ancient Egyptian names or the ancient Greek names. You may hear both. And they're both correct, but I usually prefer to use the ancient Egyptian names for the pharaohs because, well, those were their real names in their own language. And so that's just what I choose to use. So Khufu's Pyramid, it's the oldest and the largest of the pyramids at Giza. And it's therefore known as the Great Pyramid. But here's something that might trip you up a little bit. It doesn't always look like the largest one. The second oldest and second largest at Giza is the Pyramid of Khafre, or Kefron as the Greeks later called him. And it actually looks larger both in person and in photographs from some angles. But 
Khafre's pyramid is actually seven feet shorter than the Great Pyramid of Khufu. That's because Khafre's pyramid, the middle one, was built on terrain that was 33 feet higher than the nearby ground on which his father, Khufu's pyramid, was built. Now, originally, Khufu's pyramid, the great one, was 481 feet high, but the capstone on top of it has been lost to history, so it only sits at a height of about 455 feet today. But that's still seven feet higher than Khafre's pyramid, even though, as I said, Khafre's pyramid sits on a piece of land that's 33 feet higher, which makes Khafre's pyramid appear bigger to the eye from certain angles. It was kind of a clever trick that Khafre played to make sure that his pyramid was more prominent on the plateau without technically dishonoring his father by making it bigger. Kind of sneaky, huh? Now, the third primary pyramid you'll see at Giza is the Pyramid of Menkare. The Greeks and some later folks called it Mykerinus, but Menkare is the name of the pharaoh in ancient Egyptian. So we call it the Pyramid of Menkare. Now, this one was only built to a height of 215 feet, although it's down to 204 feet today. The ancient Egyptians evidently had a thing about not showing up their forefathers, but Menkare also had a clever way of making his smaller pyramids still stand out. He encased a lot of it in red granite instead of all white limestone like the other two. So you have these two much more massive structures beside his on the plateau, but his was mostly red, so it still stood out as the most unique from a distance to the eye. Most of that beautiful red granite was stripped off of Menkare's pyramid a long time ago, though, but there are still a few spots on his pyramid where you can still see the original red polished granite preserved, and it's really amazing to look at. You can get a really great vision of what it must have looked like back in the day when it was brand new. Now, notice a minute ago how I said the third primary pyramid at Giza. And when I say primary, I'm really referring to the Pharaoh's pyramids, because those are the big daddies out there. Khufu, Khafre, and Menkare. In addition to the three pharaoh's pyramids, though, there are also six additional what we call queen's pyramids at Giza. Three are beside Menkare's pyramid, and three are beside Big Daddy Khufu's pyramid, the Great Pyramid. So at Giza, there are actually a grand total of nine pyramids left that you can see, although you can't always see all of them in most shots people take of the pyramids, most photos people take of the pyramids. But later, when we talk about the logistics of visiting the pyramids, I'll tell you exactly where you can go to get photos of the pyramids that show all nine that are still standing in the same shoot. It's also important to know that the nine pyramids at Giza are not all the pyramids still standing in Egypt by far. There are over a hundred pyramids still standing in Egypt today, and many, many more that didn't survive because they either fell apart on their own or were torn down so that their stones could be reused for other building projects over the millennia. But there are a couple more really neat and historically important pyramids that you can visit near the most famous ones at Giza if you have extra time. If you only have or only want to spend about a half day exploring the pyramids when you're in Egypt, then you'll probably only be able to explore the pyramids at Giza, the ones we've been talking about, the big ones. And this is okay. If you spend a couple of hours at the Giza Plateau and see the pyramids of Khufu and Khafre and Menkare and then call it quits on pyramids so you can move on to other stuff, you've done what probably 90 to 95% of tourists to Egypt do, and you've seen the biggest and best pyramids in Egypt, and you're good. That's okay. But if you have a full day to explore pyramids, though, then after you explore Giza, you can head a little bit farther south to two additional areas known as Saqqara and Dashur to see some more really, really unique pyramids. Each of these sites, Saqqara and Dashur, is about a half an hour or so from the other 
And they're usually pretty empty of tourists these days, so it's really neat to go sometimes and see these older pyramids and have them all to yourself when you take the time to go down there and go off the beaten track a little bit and go visit them. And I'll use talking about these now, actually, as a way to transition into talking about the history of the pyramids and how they came about, since the pyramids at Giza are tied in with the history of the pyramids at Saqqara and Dashur, which are older and predate the big daddies at Giza. Okay, the beginnings of the pyramid tombs are sourced in some earlier burial structures that we call mastabas. Now, the word mastaba comes from the Arabic word for bench, because mastabas looked like big benches sitting out in the desert. There were usually two levels, with the top level being smaller than the, the base level. So you can kind of imagine like a rectangular wedding cake, each level getting smaller, but only having two levels. That was what a mastaba looked like. Then along came a king or pharaoh named Djoser in the third dynasty who had a brilliant advisor named Imhotep. And Imhotep functioned as Djoser's prime minister, but he was also his architect, he was his chief scientist, and he was kind of an all-around court genius, kind of like a jack-of-all-traits or ancient Egypt. So now that I think about it, we probably should say the Imhotep of all trades since he was the original, but Jack came along later and stole that title. But Imhotep decided to try to add more layers to his master Djoser's mastaba. So now you can imagine a square wedding cake, and instead of just having two layers getting smaller as they go up, Imhotep designed Djoser's mastaba to be five or six layers getting smaller and smaller as they go up. So this innovative new tomb for Djoser that Imhotep had constructed out at the site of Saqqara is what we today call the Step Pyramid. Now, to be sure, the Step Pyramid at Saqqara was much more beautiful back in Djoser's day than it is today. It was covered originally in white limestone so that it sparkled brilliantly in the sunlight, and it was surrounded by temples and tombs for other royals and noble figures. Today, all that's gone, but the Step Pyramid itself remains and is quite an amazing sight to go visit, especially since so few tourists do. Now, a little bit later came along a pharaoh named Sneferu, and Sneferu tried building another Step Pyramid and then changed course during the construction and tried turning the step pyramid into a smooth-sided true pyramid. But his construction was a little bit off, and it couldn't exactly be finished. And this is today a partial pyramid that still stands, the remains of which still stand, down at a site called Medum. But there's not much to see in that one. Sneferu's next try was at a site called Dashur. And this is where he started building another pyramid, smooth-sided true pyramid, but... His architects got the angle too steep on this one, too, and it wasn't quite working out either. But instead of abandoning this one, they simply changed the angle about halfway up and actually finished it. And the result was that this pyramid looked bent on all four sides because of the change in angle mid-construction. So today, since it's still standing, we call this one the Bent Pyramid. It's a really neat one. But for Sneferu, the third time was the charm. And on his third attempt at building a pyramid, he actually got the geometry right. He also used red limestone blocks on this one. And so today, since it still stands, this pyramid is known as the Red Pyramid. And this was the first successful real pyramid in ancient Egypt. Now for context, to give you a little bit of dimensions and some, some height context here, the Red Pyramid is about a third the height of the Shard skyscraper in London which, keep in mind, was built in 2012. 
or it's a little bit less than about half the height of the Transamerica skyscraper in San Francisco, which was built in 1972. Except the Red Pyramid was built sometime around 2580 BC. So in other words, about 4,600 years ago, give or take a few decades. And even the Red Pyramid ain't got nothing on the Great Pyramid of Khufu, which was built a few decades later, further up north in Giza, and was about one and a half times as large as Snefru's Red Pyramid. The Great Pyramid of Khufu is somewhere between about a half and a third the size of the Empire State Building in New York City, and it's almost as wide on each of its four sides. So now you can kind of get an idea of just how massive this monument is and how mind-blowingly impressive it is that it was built over 4,500 years ago, around 2560 BC, give or take a few decades. Now, not much is known about Khufu these days, despite his chief building project being the most famous ancient monument in the world. His father, Snefru, who built the Benton Red Pyramids down at Dashur, he founded Egypt's fourth dynasty. We know that, so Khufu would have been the second king of the fourth dynasty. Historical sources give us conflicting information, though, on how long exactly Khufu reigned as a pharaoh of Egypt. But we tend to think that it was somewhere between about two and a half and three and a half decades after the death of his father. Now, one interesting note about how we figure out how long kings and pharaohs reigned back then is the references we find in inscriptions to the national cattle counts. See, back in Khufu's day, cattle counts were done for the purposes of tax collection every two years. The cattle count people were kind of like the ancient Egyptian IRS. Much later, though, they became an annual event, but back in Khufu's day, they were done every two years. So a few inscriptions have survived referring to the 13th and 17th cattle counts of Khufu's reign. So if those are accurate, then we just double that and we know that those cattle counts were going on in the 26th and 34th years of Khufu's reign. So that's how we can pretty accurately guesstimate how long Khufu was actually a pharaoh in ancient Egypt. In addition to the pyramid that Khufu built for himself, Khufu also built three smaller queen's pyramids beside his that are about a fifth of the size of his big daddy pyramid. There are also three more queen's pyramids beside Menkare's pyramid for a grand total of six queen's pyramids at Giza, like I mentioned earlier. And these were both for queen mothers and for the favorite wives of the kings. Now, eventually, as we all do, even pharaoh god kings, Khufu died, and his son Jedifre took over and began building his pyramid up at a site called Abu Rawash. But unfortunately, his pyramid was destroyed a long time ago, so we don't know much about it other than what we can tell from examining its ruins that are left today. But when Jedifre died, his brother Khafre took over as pharaoh. And he returned to the site of their father's pyramid at Giza to start building his own. Now, not a lot is known about the reign of Khafre either, although the ancient Greek historian Herodotus wrote that Khafre was a mean and despotic ruler. But we don't know how Herodotus would have known this since Herodotus lived in the 400s BC, which was more than 2,000 years after Khafre was around. Herodotus said this type of stuff about Khafre's father, Khufu, also. So maybe he just pictured them forcing tens of thousands of slaves to lift those heavy stones and searing heat for decades to build their pyramids, kind of like in the movies. I don't know, maybe that's what he was imagining. It wasn't quite like this, though. While there certainly were slaves in ancient Egypt, mainly ones that were captured during wars and brought back enslaved as punishment, a lot of the evidence 
suggests that the workers who built the pyramids were actually decently provided for and even possibly paid wages of some sort. You know, excavations of worker villages around the pyramids complex show that the workers were fed things like beef, lamb, and goat, and that those who died while they were building the pyramids were actually buried nearby the pyramids. Remember, which were the graves of the the tombs of the pharaohs. And these workers who died were buried with provisions for the afterlife, like bread and beer and things they would need for nourishment in the afterlife. Now, there's just no way that slaves back then would have been fed prime rib and T-bones and allowed to be buried with provisions for the afterlife anywhere near the location of the mighty pharaoh's tombs. You might also say that perhaps the thousands of people that were dining well and living in this area and being buried in this area and honored in death, well, maybe they could have been the overseers of the pyramid builders instead of the builders themselves. And that would explain maybe why they were being fed better and their burial places would be allowed to be close to the pharaohs. Well, that's true. They could have been the overseers, but an analysis of the bones of the workers buried in the workers' cemetery near the pyramids actually shows signs of severe arthritis and things like lower vertebral fusions and decay, meaning that these individuals were literally engaged in a life of backbreaking work. So in all likelihood, based on the evidence we can find, the archaeological records, etc., these were most likely folks who were actually moving the stones, helping lift, were building the pyramids. And as we can see from the evidence, they were well-fed, and they were respected and honored enough to be allowed to be buried if they died in the service of the pharaoh, close to the pharaoh. So these were most likely not slaves. The talk about hundreds of thousands of slaves building the pyramids came from the Greek historian Herodotus 2,000 years later, who seemed to have had an agenda in portraying the ancient pharaohs in a negative light. You know, if 100,000 people toiled for years or decades on the Giza Plateau, there would have been plenty of archaeological evidence of them being housed and fed and tended to, etc. But the evidence being dug up from Giza's sands point to about 10 to 20,000 or so, which is still a lot of laborers, don't get me wrong, but not the hundreds of thousands of, and not slaves like you tend to hear from the legends. Now, on to Menkare. Most likely, he was the son of Khafre and the grandson of Khufu, and he was the third pharaoh to build a pyramid for himself at Giza. For what it's worth, Herodotus wrote that Menkare was much kinder and gentler of a pharaoh than his father and grandfather, but we have no evidence of this either. Herodotus may have just been writing down legends told to him by locals when he visited Egypt in the 400s BC or so, which was 2,000 years after these pharaohs lived. Now, while pharaohs before Khufu had no problem one-upping each other in building their pyramids, Khufu's immediate successors showed more reverence for their predecessors by upstaging them in more discreet ways. As I mentioned earlier, Khufu built the largest and greatest pyramid, but Khafre's pyramid looks taller from most angles because he built it on higher ground. So in the afterlife, he can actually deny upstaging his father. Same goes for Menkare. He built the smallest of the king's pyramids at Giza, but he wrapped his in a ring of brilliant red granite so that it would outshine those of his father and grandfather on the plateau to the eye of the onlooker from afar. Now, I know this episode is supposed to be all about the pyramids, and it is, but you just can't talk about the pyramids at Giza without also talking about something else that hangs out with them there too, and that's the Great Sphinx. Now, there are sphinxes all over Egypt, and you'll see lots more when you visit Luxor in southern Egypt, where there's a lot of remaining ancient temples and underground tombs. You have to go there. But none of the other sphinxes all over Egypt compare to what I call the Great Sphinx that guards the pyramids at Giza. 
unlike the pyramids, no one really knows when the Sphinx was built. Nobody really knows who built it, and nobody really knows who it's supposed to represent. Most Egyptologists believe that it's supposed to be Khafre, whose head is on the Sphinx, and that it was built around the time that Khafre's pyramid was built, a little over 4,550 years ago. Not 45 or 50 years ago. 4,550 years ago-ish. But the face of the Sphinx doesn't really look a lot like other known sculptures of Khafre that have been uncovered. So the Sphinx is still holding on to a lot of secrets to this very day, suffice it to say. Even throughout history, most of the Sphinx was buried by sand for thousands of years, and that protected its massive paws and the temple between them from severe erosion. But the same can't be said for its face. The Sphinx's head is most notably missing its nose, which you may have seen in photographs if you've seen pictures of the Sphinx. But it's also missing its characteristic pharaonic braided beard, as well as the snake or snakes on the front of its headdress. Now, a small section of the Sphinx's original beard was found in the sand beneath the head, and that piece is now in the British Museum in London. Some people blame the loss of the Sphinx's nose on Napoleon, who came to Egypt in 1798. Legend used to be that Napoleon used the Sphinx for target practice and blew his nose off with a cannon, but we know that's not true now because drawings of the Sphinx exist before the year that Napoleon arrived, and they show the Sphinx with the nose already gone. You know, some speculate that it still could have been taken off by a cannon, but maybe from an earlier invader before Napoleon. And others think that maybe religious fundamentalists may have desecrated the Sphinx's face because human statuary and depictions of human faces were considered heretical in early Islam. But we don't really know what happened to the Sphinx or even who it is for sure yet. As I've said before, much of Egypt is still an active archaeological site, and new discoveries really are being dug up out of the ground and made all around these areas all the time, even today. So you never know what you're going to stumble across when you're exploring Egypt. The sands are deep in the desert out there, and they are shifting around and blowing around all the time, and, and literally people, and especially archaeologists, but once in a while people, are discovering things that just kind of pop up out of the sand and out of the ground all the time. And that's what makes visiting Egypt really fascinating. It is still a place where new discoveries are being made, new knowledge is being learned and created based on what Egyptologists are finding and interpreting and discovering. I mean, it wasn't even until 1799 when we found the Rosetta Stone and were able to finally read hieroglyphics. So for thousands and thousands of years, we had no idea what all these temple walls and tombs and all these things with all these funny carvings on them were actually saying. And it's only been in the past, I think since the 19th century, when Egyptologists were finally able to start translating and reading hieroglyphics, that all of ancient Egypt's history and the identities of the pharaohs and what happened and the battles and the different you know evolutions of the kingdoms and things like that really started to be known. And it's one of the only places in the world that's like this where you can actually explore in an active archaeological site that's yielding new treasures every day. Okay, there's so much more that we could talk about when it comes to ancient Egypt, which is why the entire academic specialization of Egyptology exists to study and explain all this and why zillions and zillions of books on ancient Egypt have been written. 
but we can't possibly cover all of that history and all that info here in this one podcast. Instead, I've endeavored to give you kind of an idea of where the pyramids came from and how they evolved and when they were built, who built them, why they built them, etc. But if you do want to learn more about the pyramids specifically or ancient Egypt generally, Tell you what, go to EgyptTravelBlog.com and I'll do a post on some of my favorite books about ancient Egypt for you to pursue and learn more if you want to about the history. But next, we're going to move into the present and talk about what it's like to actually visit the pyramids today. But first, we're actually going to end this episode right here and call this All About the Pyramids Part 1 and pick back up with walking you through a visit to the pyramids today, a very, very, very important part that you'll want to seriously listen closely to, by the way in All About the Pyramids Part 2, which will be in the next episode. But don't worry, we're not going to keep you in suspense. We're releasing them both here at the same time, so you can continue listening to Part 2 right after this one, and we'll pick right back up. So with that, we'll wrap up this episode as Part 1 right here, and we'll see you again in Part 2 in the next episode of All About the Pyramids on the Egypt Travel Blog Podcast. <music>